This is Coder Radio, episode 367, for July 22nd, 2019. And welcome to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show that takes a pragmatic look at the art and business, software development, and related technologies. My name is Wes, and I'm very pleased to be joined by the one, the only, Mr. Michael Dominic. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hello, hello, Wes. How have you been? Oh my, I'm doing great. You know, it's it's going to be somewhere in the 80s today out here in the Pacific Northwest, and well, that makes most people freak out, but there's been a heat wave in the U.S., so we're all sitting pretty cool over here. How are you doing over in the swamplands of Florida? I am good. I actually just got back from a trip. Uh, I've been traveling since 4 a.m., so it's great. It's great. But uh, yeah, I am back in the swamp where I belong. That says everything I need to know about you, Mr. Dominic, because you showed up here nevertheless, and I think we've all been there. We know how terrible travel can be. Yes. That doesn't stop you, though. So, an example of that, last week, we had an episode that we pre-recorded, which I enjoyed a lot, called The Functional First, and and that was you helping me out. I was traveling, you accommodated me. So, the theme here, Mike's great, the show goes on. You can find it all at coder.show. You can subscribe, follow the RSS, and it'll always be delivered right to you. Speaking of Functional First, we got some feedback on that episode over at our subreddit. Yes, there's a subreddit. CoderRadio.reddit.com is how you find it. Friend of the show, Tyler, writes in, This was my favorite episode in a long time. Well, thank you, Tyler. As a C++ developer working on a large, primarily object-oriented code base, I've been writing ever more C++ as just a pipeline of data transformations. As you guys mentioned, you can get a lot of benefit even in an OO situation, from wrapping a functional core, so to speak, up in an object package. Tyler goes further and actually recommends two talks that really changed the way he thought about some of this stuff. And the first one is one I've seen and really love and should have linked in the last episode, so you'll find it in the show notes for this episode. And that's Gary Bernhardt's talk, Functional Core Imperative Shell. And I think that's, I mean, that's just a great name, and it kind of describes a lot of the idea. Yes, you have to have side effects. Yes, you have to do imperative mutable stuff, but that can all live at the edges, and you can have a core of nicely defined peer functions. And that talk goes a long way to explaining all that stuff I was rambling on about last week. If you're interested in C stuff, he also recommends one more link, which is Postmodern Immutable Data Structures, which talks about how some of this stuff works in the C world. Yeah, I think one of the uh, one of the key things, the key takeaways we were trying to get through to people was, uh, in terms of like dipping into functional programming, you don't have to drink the Kool Aid and go full, you know, Haskell or F sharp or Closure or whatever. You can take some of the concepts and the methodologies uh, or the strategies rather, and implement them and use them in, you know, again in this case C right? Yeah, and I really appreciated your inputs and in, on that episode for that reason because you know it's. I get to use some languages, I, I choose to use languages when I can that make it a little easier to be functional first, but 
you know, you're actually selling software to real people who don't care about the technical details, right? They they just want a product from you that works, and you just you just got to make it happen in whatever language it already exists. Yeah, it's uh, they don't really care about it at all, to be honest with you. All right. Well, if you guys want to send us feedback like Tyler did, and we would love that. We always appreciate feedback at the Coda Radio program. We don't always have time to read all of it on air, but but we do read all of it. We take your links, your suggestions, your criticisms all to heart. Coder.show slash contact is the easiest way to get in touch. Now, of course, you can also find us on Twitter. And well, I I follow you, Mike. That's my admission for the day. I noticed you tweeting about something and I didn't really expect, and I'm sorry if that's a judgment call that is maybe misplaced, but you were you were tweeting about Emacs the other day. Yes, I was. So, little known fun fact, my uh, my first editor I used professionally was in fact Emacs, um, or I should say, yeah, semi professionally. And then I got a job, and the guy was uh, let's just say not neutral on the Vim Emacs war in favor of Vim, and literally did not allow Emacs. Like not not at all. Just not not even to enter the building. Like you, if you worked, if if you were on the team, you used Vim. Wow, that's you know I've you know, obviously I've seen I've seen things like that for more complete development environments. You know, if it's like okay, well we all use IntelliJ on the team and we've configured our environment and we keep all the stuff in source control. I get that, and I mean that could work for Vim too, but it's a little unusual. Yeah, it's a, it's interesting. So I've been kind of looking at Emacs again, uh, just to say, like, you know, there's, it's always been just an itch I've wanted to scratch. And you actually sent me a link to something called SpaceMax, which is pretty pretty interesting. Can you go into a little bit of what is this versus, let's say, proper GNU Emacs or maybe vanilla GNU Emacs is more fair? Well, it, if you weren't lucky enough to kind of grow up with Emacs and experience learning how to use it, how how to write a little bit of Elisp, how to configure things. Well, it's pretty foreign as an environment in 2019, especially if you're coming from something like like IntelliJ or, or VS Code. SpaceMax is um it's an Emacs distribution, I guess. It it focuses on the the evil layer, the Vim emulation. Um so as a as a Vim user myself, I thought that I thought that was great. They basically just ship you like a very nicely configured Emacs right out of the box. And I should be clear, if you're an Emacs user, power user, someone who knows what they're doing and, and has their own Emacs file, okay, maybe this isn't for you. you you've already figured that out. But when I was trying to learn and kind of kind of play with Emacs a little bit, one of the driving reasons was playing with Clojure and Emacs, you know, being a, a lispy sort of environment, that that's where a lot of the best plugins were. But I didn't know Emacs from from you know the back of my hand whatsoever. Thankfully, SpaceMax was there for me and made it easy to install all the plugins I wanted and comes with a nice dark theme right out of the gate. So tell me a little more about Vim emulation, because that, that seems to be the biggest pushback I got when I started talking about this on Twitter was, but every machine you're going to SSH into probably has Vim on it. So Emacs has Evo, which is the extensible VI layer for Emacs, and it basically provides a whole bunch of key bindings that you're familiar with. Wait, it's called Evil? That's amazing. The free software community generates some of the best names, I've just got to say. It's not going to be, like, picture-perfect compatible, you know? Like, there's, there's, if you're a master Vim user, there, there's probably some things that Evil doesn't have for you. But if you're just looking for a similar editing environment with similar, you know, VI-style movements, well, boom. Just look no further than Evil. So if you'd like to try Emacs and not sell your soul, you could, I guess, use 
Space Max or Ganui Max. But I personally am going to drink that Demon Blood and go evil. Yes. And so evil's um like a module you can install. You could use Space Max or just install Emacs from the um the repo. And that's what it's like when, when you're using Space Max too, I should say. So like you just install Emacs like usual. Installing Space Max is basically installing their pre-configured configuration directory for you, right? So they've set that all up ready to go. And then they've got some nice documentation and guides to kind of guide you through that. And I'm sure I sound like a complete novice to to anyone in our audience who's a master Emacs user. So if you have tips, if you've got better ways that Mike should be exploring, maybe Space Max is a horrible abomination in your eyes. Let us know. If you're a master Emacs user, does that make you an e-master? Oh, I think it does. I, I am kind of curious. Like, what do you what do you use it on the day to day? What's your preferred IDE? Do you like a text editor, or are you you want something more full featured? Where do you fall on that spectrum? Yeah, I am pretty deep into the JetBrains toolchain. Although I ha- I have been leaning on VS Code a little more, which is why I'm like, well, maybe I could go back to like Emacs or Vim. It's funny because the more and more I'm thinking, I I can't decide if I still like the big heavy IDEs or not. Because there is something just like very nice about you know being on um you know on on a, a gnome terminal or terminal and just you know vimming open or uh, VS coding a file and working with it right now the problem is what I've done to my VS code has it's gotten to the point of it's its own weird IDE for a bunch of languages and now it's written in Electron yeah it sure is I mean I will say as an Electron app VS Code's one of the the snappier ones out there. I think it's one of the best, right? This is probably going to be a failed experiment, and I'm just going to go back to, you know, insert JetBrains tools here, only because I've been using them a long time, right? They have RubyMine, they have um, um, RubyMine and PyCharm are kind of the two I use a lot. I occasionally use CLion, although I find that one a little less polished than the others. Mm, that's one of the ones I have not actually tried. Yeah, well, it's, it's just because there's like such a wide variety of C and C++ out there that I think, I think when I tr- last use it, it C line wasn't exactly as mature as say a Ruby miner. Obviously, IntelliJ their their Cadillac Java IDE I use all, anytime I'm doing Java. Cadillac is probably the best term. I don't know about you, but I think I've met developers who couldn't run Java C on the command line to save their lives. Yes, yes, I um I have to say I kind of hate Gradle without IntelliJ. So there is that. Even though now it is less crappy and just like you know what is it Gradle build Gradle install whatever. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So does that mean you're like a comfortable um, VI-style key bindings user? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with Vim bindings. Um, I do use them occasionally. Like my RubyMine is set up with Vim, Vim bindings, which is, of course, imperfect, right? But I'm not sure that I need everything I'm getting with the full ID, right? Um, and some of it's kind of obnoxious. Um, RubyMind's a bad example because I actually, I actually think that's one of the better ones. I actually, I'm interested in that. Um, so let's let's circle back after you're done. Sure. Um, like Project Rider, which is their, um, and I'm only saying JetBrains stuff because I I predominantly work in their tools. Uh, is their .NET IDE for some reason in one of the more recent updates? I think it's actually I think it is the last one. They suggest a change that violates the Visual Studio style guide. So if you make the change it suggests, because it thinks you're violating the style, and then you open it in Visual Studio proper, Visual Studio complains. And it's like the dumbest thing about casing. When, and I know as people are going to write in, well, you can change that and have your own style guide. I do like to keep it just to .NET Core's um, default style guide for obvious reasons. 
Sure. So that's like mildly annoying to me. And it seems like it was just a decision that got made. Again, I think that is a tool that's going to get better, but it is one, I think it's actually their newest implementation of their um, IntelliJ platform. And it's particularly on Linux, it can be rough if you're trying to do Xamarin. Um, in fact, if you Google Xamarin Android forms on Linux, you will see my little mad botter guy, because it's me in the support forums, trying to work it out with other people and the Intelli- the uh, JetBrains folks, because there's a bunch of breaking issues. Interesting. So I'm, I was also curious there, you're talking about RubyMine, and I'm most familiar with their products through IntelliJ, where there's, you know, they've, they've implemented a ton of really fancy static analysis of, of Java to make it, you know, it's it's a much more interactive environment, even though Java is so static, and it can generate, you know, tons of code boilerplate for you, and it can jump to definitions and all kinds of much fancier features. How does that compare to RubyMine? I mean, Ruby's a, you know, a much more dynamic language. Does it have all of those superpowers, or does it go about it in a different way? It, it does, yeah. Um, so we can do some pretty advanced refactorings. And the one dirty thing about like Ruby developers, particularly Rails developers, is Ruby is a nice, dynamic language that everybody uses hardcore linters for to basically enforce uh, style and a bunch of rules. I'll give you an example. Uh, the most common one is something called the uh, RuboCop, which I'll, I'll link in the show notes. Oh, I am familiar with RuboCop, my friend. We've waged a few battles back and forth in my day. It goes too far into what I would consider like opinion, right? Like so every time, okay, we can, let's take this tangent. Every time Ruby comes out with a new, like, one-line way to do something, the maintainers of RubyCop, just, like, something happens to them, and they feel like that has to be the correct way to do it. And then it complains constantly at me that I'm not using the new fanciness. Which, if you have code bases that are relatively, you know, a couple years old, that, that can happen quite a lot. And if you're OCD like me and want to get rid of all those warnings, yeah. Um, Ruby mine has its own linter for Ruby and it is much more uh-huh. basically the, the, one of the accepted Ruby style guides. And it's, um, I think it's a pretty reasonable accommodation to what, what an experienced Ruby developer would say is the, you know, accepted style where Ruby cop is, I don't know. I feel like it's the apple of linters and I, it's like pushing you forward, right? It's trying to get you to like update everything. Ah, so Ruby mine it's easy to have the benefits of a linter, especially, as you say, in a in a dynamic environment. But it's not the same sort of, you know, with RuboCop, you either got to do a lot of care, kind of careful tuning sometimes or make sure you only stick to the stable releases. And you might have to do some work integrated into a project. But maybe with RubyMine, you can kind of just start using it, get the benefits, and not have to make dramatic changes across your team. Yeah, I mean, the, the one big advantage of RuboCop, though, because it does go so far into stylistic things, you could basically just make it your company style guide and say, we all use RubyCop and warnings are not acceptable so that you're, you don't have different styles in the same code base. But that assumes like a greenfield project. Yeah, that makes sense, right? And maybe you've, you've probably integrated it into your CI system so it'll you know, warn you as you go through it. Yeah, well, you can actually integrate it into, into VS Code in particular in Atom. So. And actually, I think there's a plugin for RubyMind for RubyCop if you want to go that way. You know, I'm I'm sensing a Coder Radio future special here, which is Mike pimps your Ruby setup because I I wouldn't mind it, and I bet there's some audience members who wouldn't mind it either. All right, here's the key: spinning rims. Ooh, shiny! You know what else I bet is pretty shiny, Mister Dominic? Not that you have one, but if you did, well, it, it'd probably be your 
Tinder profile, and it would brag about your elite IDE setup, no doubt. I saw some news I wanted to ask you about as, you know, the, the app developer that you are. Tinder has now joined the growing backlash against App Store taxes by bypassing Google Play, right? So instead of going through Google Play, using the credit card stuff, paying that 30% tax, Tinder has joined companies like Spotify and Netflix and saying, hey, give us your credit card, we'll bill you directly. What's happening here, Mike? And is this a sign that something's going to have to finally change in the industry? Or are these just the big players who can do it using their muscle and getting away with it? I think both of those things are true, right? I mean, you know, I've been, I don't want to use the word railing, but I guess railing is technically true, for years about how 30% for small businesses like myself is just too much money. And in the past, I, I think it was a weaker argument than it is today because like, it just does not cost that much to host individual apps anymore. And, you know, credit card processing with things like um, Gumroad, which is where I used to sell my Mac apps. And um, frankly, Stripe's API is awesome and very affordable to use. Um, it's ridiculous, right? Like, having said that, you know, if I were to release a mobile app soon, I would certainly not go through any of this effort to avoid the Apple tax or the Google Play tax. Because I'm not, I'm not Tinder, right? I'm not, um, who's the other guy? Fortnite's doing it too, right? Oh, yeah. And that's a big one too, right? I mean, plenty of people spend on gaming on, on mobile. And they're doing it on Google Play though. And, and they're like, when it's millions of dollars, that 30%, I, I definitely see where they're coming from. I do wonder, and I'm sure they'll never tell us, classic like startup business development thing, right? This is the business part. The harder you make it for someone to purchase something in an app, every dialog box, every field you require them to fill out, peel off some percentage of your purchasers. Right, right. If I can just hit pay, give you money right now through Google that I've already set up, that's a lot easier. I'm, we're all sick of entering credit card details. Right, which is like the primary advantage of the App Store uh, in-app purchase system, which is why like, if I were to release, say, an iPad app, it would absolutely use Apple's IEP. I would love to know what the leakage rate is, right, for Tinder. Like, let's say, let's just play numbers. 20,000 people a month. I don't use Tinder. I'm married, so I have no idea. What, do you know how it works? What do you buy in Tinder? A lot of those dating apps, um, it's it's premium plans, right? So you get some base feature amount, but if you want to say, you know, you, you swiped left on someone, you said you weren't interested, but you messed that up, and you want the ability to go back and undo it, well, pay $5 a month, and then you can Right. So, okay. So, it's like a LinkedIn premium account almost. Exactly. Okay. Well, what LinkedIn does in this case, actually, is they think it's slightly cheaper if you buy it on the website, but I think for sales navigator or something. But yeah, I would love to see like what, like if they, if out of 20,000 people, they would normally close the IAP, you know, 15 or 10 or whatever, what is the new number going to be forcing them to go to the website and enter their credit card and do it that way? That is a great question. What do you think the right number is, right? I mean, does Google should get some cut, maybe, for enabling the platform and like, like providing a whole bunch of APIs and stuff for, and payment systems? And if, if 30 too much is unreasonable, I mean, should it be some sort of sliding scale or just a lower flat rate? It currently is a sliding scale, right? So if you do a subscription model and it's an annual one on the second year, it's 15% now. The problem is, and what I've seen, particularly like I'm trying to find a I'm on a quest, and we could talk about this in another show, for a very specific iPad app that I want when I travel. And if I can't find it, I'm just going to write it because I keep needing the same thing every trip. 
but this is an app you would really just buy and not subscribe to, right? I'm gonna, I'll just, you know, use an example like podcast players, all the big ones now are making you subscribe to your podcast app, which coming from at least my position of like having been a more traditional Mac developer in the past makes no sense at all to me. Right. We've entered this era of everything must be a subscription service. And for something that makes sense and you want like continual revenue with the presumption that improvements will be coming to the product. But for a lot of things, you're like, I just, I just want to buy a hammer. I have it. I need to do this one thing with it. If you never update it again, that's fine. Give me the hammer. I'll give you 10 bucks. Yeah. Like I am, this is Mike's tangent. I had to buy office for somebody for a relative this past week because, you know, they're older. They didn't know. They just didn't, they couldn't do it. They needed a hammer. I went to the store to buy office, to Best Buy. A physical store. Like you got, you got away from your computer, you found your keys, you got your wallet, you got in the car, you drove to the store, then you walked down the aisle and located the physical boxed version of the software. Is that what you're saying? No, because there was no boxed version. Wow. (laughs) So you were just left looking like an idiot asking, do you have software here? You know what it is? It's just a key code. It's just a code, a license key. That's all it is. You're buying like, it looks like a gift card. And the best is the salesman was killing himself to get me to buy Office 365 instead of the traditional, um, you know, small business, whatever it is, home business license. I stuck to my guns. Even when installing the, uh, you know, the standalone uh, perpetual whatever year office, it still required you to sign in with a Microsoft account. Then after you had just spent 200 and something dollars on this license, it tried to hit you up to sign up for Office 365 anyway. Of course it does. Ugh. It's ridiculous. I mean, can't you just buy Excel? I'm, I'm, it's just crazy to me. But eh. I, as a Linux user, I appreciate some aspects of Office 365 just for letting me operate in that environment in a nice way. But you're right. Like, it's just... It was one thing when these were additional models, you know, like, oh, yeah, or if it makes more sense for you, here's this other way to use our products and pay for it. Great, fine. It does feel like they're just trying to deprecate the you buy software and come close to kind of even something like own it anymore. It soon, I mean, it might be a figment of our past imaginations. Exactly, exactly. So what do you, I'll, I'll put the question to you. What do you think the right number ought to be for the app store percentage? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't think that I have a, a hard number to say. How do you value the platform, right? Like, how do we make a good accounting of all the services that are provided? Because, I mean, obviously, at some level, they just get to say, right? Like, it's their, it's their platform. Well, and we, well, we should actually know Spotify and a few other companies are suing because of this very issue. Right. So, so we, may, we, may, we may see. You know, when it's a healthy environment, when there are enough enough options when they're actually making good investments then i like a, a slightly higher fee would make a little more sense to me if it's but if it's just sort of a monopoly tax you know like well you have to play on our game and uh we have a store you have to use so here you go pay us money now that, that feels a little bit worse and doesn't really help the end user very much i mean and the side of it that is a little weird is like just because i mentioned spotify where you are now competing with the platform vendor who you rely on, and they are taxing you 30% to compete with them. That, that's where I think it almost gets weird. In a way, I kind of don't care as much as I used to about the 30% cut. I just almost feel like if you are in the business of being a platform vendor, you should not also be an application or service vendor, which I know is like 
never going to happen. But you see what I'm saying? Like the, the temptation to screw over your competitors is just a little too juicy, in my opinion. Yeah, you're right. There are some weird, maybe even perverse incentives at play here. So, all right, there's another topic I wanted to pick your brain about. And there's, I think, another set of perverse incentives at play. You you brought this up in our uh, off-show production chat. And that's the recent little Twitter storm over 10x engineers. What's What's going on, Mike? And what's a 10x engineer? Well, that's a great question. So what's going on is um, some startup guy whose name I don't recall, but it's it's kind of not super important for the story. Shikar Karani. Founders, if you ever come across this rare breed of engineers, grab them. If you have a 10x engineer as part of your first few engineers, you increase the odds of your startup success significantly. So first off, I don't know if I'm a 10x engineer, but if you are a startup founder and you see me and you just grab me, I might punch you. So just bad advice. Yeah, I mean, 2019, you got to get consent now. You have to like maybe a a brief written contract, general grabbing agreement or something, right? Yeah, so, okay. So he's asserting that there are these magical people called 10x engineers. I think we've all heard this term for years now. I kind of don't know that they exist. <laughs> but I there are definitely people who are more like I call them math savvy than I am. I like I would consider you one of these people. Like you are you are able to go more down into the kind of mathematics fundamentals of things or is it that just cuz you use closure and that's how I see it? Well, maybe. Where I tend to work with a little more abstraction, except when I go insane and start coding to boards, but we'll worry about that. I don't know. Like, I, 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 all right, let's take a step back. Have you ever met a, a 10x engineer? And if so, like, what is the profile of that person? Who is that person? Yeah, and that's what a lot of this the thread kind of spends some time trying to suss out. <laughs> and honestly, when I first saw it, it was, it's kind of hard to tell how serious all of it really was. Now, I do think we, we've all met people... And I don't even want to say people because time and context, I think, is one of the key parts that isn't brought up enough in this discussion. But I think we've all been in contexts where there have been people around us who were able to accomplish an, an incredible amount, right? Either they knew the right things, they had the right tools, they were able to combine all of that together, they defeated distractions or questions and delivered the remarkable work. And I think it's reasonable to, to want to assess how that happens. I, but it's probably dangerous to enable too much cult of personality. There also seems to be a little bit of, is there, is there like a an exploitation factor here? I mean, obviously, you know, the the employee-employer relationship is also at play. It, it just feels bad to me to even have the label. And, I'll, and I, I'm almost looking at it from another perspective of, you know, I think I tweeted something snarky about this when somebody mentioned it to me. Like, I, or we said it, I said it to you in Slack, that's right. What I really hear is, you know, the hot thing used to be full stack a couple years ago, right? And and what I really heard when all these startup guys would say, I need a full stack engineer is I don't want to pay a back end and a front end engineer, right? I would like two jobs done for 1.25 or, or one. Right. I'd like to pay, yeah, approximately a little bit, maybe a little bit more, maybe than one salary and do everything that I need, please. So, okay. 
You know, there definitely is the type of software developer who is very good at coding. And I think this is something some of the other people commenting on this brought up, but is kind of, how can I say this, um, politically correct, a gaping defecation hole. Yeah, you know, I've been lucky enough to work at some um, some places in the past that had a, at least would talk about, um, you could argue about implementation, but talk about like a, a no assholes policy, right? And the idea is even if you are this incredible engineer, like you don't get to dictate what happens, you don't get to be a, a, a jerk. And I think that plays into that that personality aspect. Like there are, there are so many skills that go involved, like you might be able to sling code really well, but especially in like a larger enterprise environment, there's a, there's a lot of social aspects that are at least as important as that to the overall operating of a team or an organization. It also seems to be just sort of bad, bad st- statistics sort of stuff. Like, yes, clearly, like there are people with different ranges of those skill sets, right? Some people are good at, at doing code review and mentoring. Some, some aren't. Some just want to be like down in the weeds and can write a super fast, correct network stack implementation. And others are really good at modeling data pipelines, right? We, we, there's all different skill sets. So we have to be careful how we judge that. It also seems like even within those skill sets, yes, there's a distribution of, of skill. Focusing on the 10x developer is is one way to look at it, but shouldn't we also be looking at the other extreme? Like, what are the problems going on? This is why I like to talk about functional programming so much as one aspect, I think. Like, what are the problems going on that are preventing more of us from being more productive, right? Do we not have the right tools? Do we not have the right knowledge or assistance or skills? Maybe we can't all be 10x developers, but I think we can all be better than 1x. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's, we uh, see you get dangerously close to things like process expectations. You know, there's a lot of like management e things. Like, for instance, I'm thinking about this from a contracting perspective. Was the job just like massively underbid, right? Because then, it, no matter what, how good of a developer you are, you're never going to actually be successful in that job, right? You've already set yourself up for failure. Are you running any form of waterfall? <laughs> it's just not possible, at least in, for as long as I've been doing this, to actually have a customer who upfront knows everything they want. And then once you have a waterfall, and what I really mean say so waterfall, I mean fixed bid, you're just going to end up in a fight because you do have to get paid for your work, but they may decide that they want something different, right? And you're always doing this hostage negotiation, which is why you should do agile hourly contracts all the time. It ends up being cheaper for the customer, less stress for you. It's a harder sell to people like you know, people who aren't really in the industry, but most anybody coming from an engineering background, unless they're like literally building bridges where it's a little different, um, is going to know that like an agile process is going to work better. And I know that's a big statement and I, I'm happy to hear any feedback, but it, and if you are like a waterfall guru and you can tell me like, there's a way to do this, great. I have not seen it work because just the upfront cost of trying to even do any any kind of that waterfall documentation is generally very high and i have done it i used to sell it as a service you just don't know right like the customer is never going to know everything that they want up front i mean how, how could they they haven't seen anything right yeah yeah i do like i mean what you're saying i like the, the chances for for more review more flexibility that's it that's an interesting point and i i've certainly seen that go pretty wrong myself 
one one person whose thoughts I appreciated in this this whole discussion was Anti Res of of Redis fame, um, and he had a great blog post kind of detailing some of the talks about some of the issues with how we're talking about the conversation in general. But then also just had a a good list of how you might talk about programming productivity and some of the things that you might need. Right, like you you got to know how to break things down into small tasks and be able to get those subtasks done. And so an example might be for you, Mike. Right, like if you've made Rails apps, web servers, web sort of back-end apps, worked with databases a whole bunch, that means there's a whole list of subtasks that are just cached for you, right? You're like, oh, okay, I need another REST endpoint. No problem, let me just bang that out in, in an hour or two, and it'll be done. But if you're coming from a different world, you, you're moving from the embedded environment, say, that's a lot to figure out for the first time. Yeah, I mean, and there's, I mean, I, I will say there are signs of good development or let's say above average developers, right? Like having a toolbox of scripts or like, I guess in the world of Docker container configuration files that you just have pre ready to go and that you reliably use. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've set up rails and Doku and Postgres, right? Like seriously, I must have done it hundreds of times by now, even in open SUS twice. Even in open Suze. Yeah, he's got some other good points that are definitely worth checking out. You know, things like not chasing perfectionism and making sure you keep simplicity in mind. Dear audience, I'm sure you probably have some thoughts on this whole discussion debate and maybe some thoughts about what you value when trying to assess your fellow coders out there. If you do, please let us know. We'd love to hear it. Coder.show slash contact. Mike, you've had a long day. I think that means we should take this moment to wrap up today's episode. If they want more of you, though, especially sleep-deprived Mike, because he can be fun, well, you're you're also on Twitter, right? What's your handle again? At Tumanuko, but I will try not to be fun today. <laughs> yeah, that's probably best. You deserve a very long nap. I'm on Twitter as well. I'm at Wes Payne. And, of course, the whole network's there, too, at Jupiter Signal. If you want to subscribe to the show, well, that's just coder.show slash RSS for our direct RSS feed. And you can go to coder.show to find all the links for everything else you might want, including our back catalog, show notes for any particular episode, and links to just about everything else. If you want to check out other great Jupiter Broadcasting productions, just head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>